you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Hello and welcome back everyone. This is Lisa Palladino, the host of Tongue Tie Experts podcast, and I am so happy that you've tuned in today. This episode is a little different than most. Actually, it may be my most vulnerable episode ever. The tables are turned and you'll hear me being interviewed by Lo Negrash about my personal experiences with birth and breastfeeding. If you've ever wondered how I got from being someone born into and working in a medicalized and bottle feeding family and culture to being an advocate for natural birth and breastfeeding, please listen. You may remember Lo Negrash from episode 303 of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. The episode that you'll hear today is from her own podcast called The Milk Making Minutes. I recommend everyone listen to her podcast episodes because she is telling wonderful stories about breastfeeding that will benefit everyone. The link to The Milk Making Minutes will be in the show notes as to the podcast episode that she did with me and all the ways to follow both of us. All of that will be in the show notes. A special thank you to Lo for lending me this episode, for being such an advocate, and for allowing me the time and space to share more about my journey. Here you go. I am always so thrilled when I get to hear the personal stories of providers I admire. And hearing tongue-tie expert Lisa Palladino's personal breastfeeding stories gives us an understanding of the cultural changes that happen in her part of the country over the period of a decade and which she helped create. Hearing her stories also gives us hope that more professionals that are creating breastfeeding barriers can be open to changing their minds, just like she did. What are the ways that you have seen your own providers either grow and change as you have presented them with evidence-based information in regards to your own care or that of your baby? Or what are the ways that they have remained rigid? Think about these questions as you listen to this powerful story. My name is Lisa Palladino. I'm a certified nurse midwife, an RN, and an IBCLC. I live in Staten Island, New York where I'm in private practice for the last seven years and and change. And before that, I worked for 
a very large hospital system doing all kinds of things. You know, started as a nurse, worked myself up as a midwife, became a lactation consultant at the same time, started and ran the breastfeeding initiative for many years, trying to become baby friendly, knocking my head against the wall, decided mm. to give it up, save my life because it was literally killing me to <laughs> work that hard with mm. not good results and not such a happy place. I specialize in tongue tie. I have three children that I that were born from my body, but I raised seven children altogether because my wow. sister passed away early and left me with four four gifts, as I like to say. And mm -hmm. now they're all grown up, and my oldest is thirty one. They range from thirty one to twenty. Seven mm -hmm. kids in there, and um, happily married forever, um, <laughs> thirty five years to my college sweetheart and we live here very happily. So wow. my life is a lot different right now than so many of your listeners and yourself included who have little ones running around, right? But I do have a grandson who was born in January and- um, Oh, amazing. I ask all of my guests what their exposure to breastfeeding was before having a baby to highlight an important structural barrier, lack of exposure. And for Lisa, her answer to this question highlighted another systemic failure, which was that she had very little exposure, even though she was a nurse working on a labor and delivery floor before she had a baby. Let that sink in. We expect these nurses to help us, but they have so little education on this topic themselves, and they don't even know what they don't know. So you would think as an RN, at the time I was an RN when I first became a mom, that I would have learned about breastfeeding. But no. one of my mantras is we do not learn about this in school, right? right. We don't learn yeah. about breastfeeding. We don't learn about tongue tie. We learn that it's important. We learn sim simple, really, like, you know, maybe a half hour's worth of knowledge about breastfeeding. Um, my mother did not breastfeed. My grandmother breastfed one of her four kids but only for a little bit and, and made it like it wasn't something that she should do. And this is interesting because this was back in the forties, my grandmother, and she was a, she was an immigrant. She was from Syria and she was led to believe that American women gave their babies formula and that was the right way to feed their babies. And that she was just being like a, you know, like, like somebody to look down upon as an immigrant who wanted to breastfeed her babies because her mother had breastfed her in, you know, and her siblings. But that was erased from her, I don't know, from her cultural aspect of what was the right thing to do, which is really sad. That and also her language. Like we did not mm -hmm. learn Arabic because... They were ashamed of it, which is so sad. Like, I wish I could right. go back and say, Grandma, please keep what you knew, you know? So I was the first one to have a baby. My friends all bottle fed. I had two nurse friends that I worked with who were breastfeeders and talked to me about breastfeeding. But other than that, I knew nobody and I knew nothing. I had never seen anybody breastfeed except for the women that breastfed that I took care of in the hospital. Mm. and they were looking for and, me to help them. Yeah, and, I, I knew and what nothing. type of unit did you work in in the hospital? I worked in postpartum nursery, well, baby nursery, mm -hmm. and then 
labor and delivery. I was working in labor and delivery when I had my first son. So okay. yeah, and I had no experience. I was I was helping people breastfeed and I had no idea what to do. It was really yeah. kind of sad when I look back on it. Yeah. Yeah. So then he yeah. born. And and we had some interesting um, you know, in nineteen ninety one there were some interesting things going on in the newborn nursery. We had bottles that had formula, but we had bottles that had sterile water and we had bottles that had glucose water. And there was no rhyme or reason as to what you gave when. So it was, you know what, this feeding, I'll nurse him. You know what, this feeding, oh, there's somebody here, I'll give him formula. Oh, I gave him formula last time. This time I'll give him glucose water. I don't know how he survived. I really don't, but he, he thrived. But I had no idea what I was doing with nursing. He liked to nurse. I had no pain. But I don't even really think that my milk actually came in fully because I was doing this combination from the beginning. And there came a point where I started to get nervous about having to go back to work. And I was thinking that I would have to start giving more bottles. I never had a pump. I never pumped. Nobody told me that that was important for him anyway. And... um so I started giving him formula in the bottle more often than I was feeding him. And one day he didn't want the bottle. He just wanted to nurse. And you know that, you know, that feeling of a baby that like they just start nuzzling and they're like, he, he did not want the bottle out of the blue. He must've been about two months old. So instead of thinking, well, this is great. He just wants to nurse. I should make more breast milk for him. I decided to cut him off. I was oh, like, well, wow. how am I going to go back to work if he won't take a bottle? I have to stop breastfeeding because he needs to be able to take a bottle. Mm. I had no one to ask, no one mm -hmm. to guide me. Mm. And that's what I did. And I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. You know, in my opinion, in my time, like at that point, I was like, yeah, I breastfed my son. Like I went back to work saying, yes, I breastfed him. But when I look back, I call it token breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Right. Which now I never want anybody to feel badly, right? So you know better, you do better. I say that all the time. But I, you know, somebody listening to me might say, well, you did a good job. You, did, you know, yeah, I know that. I don't want anybody who had the same experience as me who feels differently about it to feel badly by what I'm saying. Right. You know what I mean? Like I'm, there's no judgment here. This was my experience and knowing what I know now I want to, again, another reason to bang my head against the wall. Like, wow, I he could have been such a great nurser. He had no pain. He's got no tongue tie. He's got the best mm -hmm. mouth of any of my kids. He could have been such a great nurser if I knew what to do. After hearing a little bit about how nursing started, I wanted to know what impact the birth might have had on the beginning of her breastfeeding relationship with her son. Lisa described the birth of her son as being traumatic. She is four foot 11. And as a labor and delivery nurse who was friends with her providers, who decided she should be induced two days past her due date, her son was over seven pounds and had a nuchal cord. His APGAR score was a seven and he was rushed to the NICU. As you listen to what happened next, Think about the impact of the birth of your children on your feeding experiences. This story happened over 30 years ago, yet 
this exact story is still told daily. And these interventions have long lasting impacts on our ability to feed our babies. What will it take to remove the barrier of stressful births and immediate separations from our babies from the equation so that feeding can get off to the best start possible? And then when I was recovered, they wheeled me in with a wheelchair and I literally sat in the middle of a NICU, empty NICU nursery and mm-hmm. nursed him for the first time. Cause I was like, no, I okay. wasn't. that instinct was there, you know? Okay. Like, I want to be so with my baby. Bit, I nurse my baby. There was a bit of delay, you know, between delivery and nursing. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it didn't seem to impact his ability to suckle. No. And, and it was only like probably an hour or two. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't a long time. Yeah. Was there anyone there who was offering lactation support? I know that when you work at the hospital, there can be this, you can sometimes often get less support because there's this idea that, oh, she knows what she's doing. She Mm -hmm. doesn't need the support or I'm not going to interfere and so you, you know, sometimes you can get more privileges when you work within the hospital system, yeah. but also there can be this feeling of like, oh, we're not going to send the support. So was support available to There patients? was no support available. There was okay. nothing. My role became um, breastfeeding initiative coordinator lactation consultant in 2008. That was, oh. the first was someone who was a lactation consultant at the hospital. There was a, before me, there was a staff educator who was an IBCLC, but she was just hired to educate the staff. She was like in in professional development. She was not on the floor unless she voluntarily decided to make visits, which was crazy. But so no, I got no help, no support. It actually, you know, for those who are work, who are working in the hospital, I don't know if it's different since COVID, but what happened with me was I got so many visitors, you know, everybody wanted to come in to see me. And that was part of the, the reason why I was giving bottles because I was like, I wasn't going to undress and start nursing this baby in front of, you know, the housekeeper that I work with or the whatever, you know, the clerk and the, the administrators came, like everybody came to visit me well-wishing, you know, it was wonderful that I had a lot of friends um, but it was, you know, I had one friend that I had barely seen. I had, I had worked with her a year before she came and she sat in my room all evening. And I was like, what are you doing here? I just wanted to be alone. I want to recover. I want to spend time with my, my new son and my husband, you know? So that kind of stuff can also happen when you work at the hospital, you get too much attention, you know, and yes. it, it takes away from that rest and recover time. And that's an interesting fact. People have um, a hard enough time newly breastfeeding in front of family. Yes. But I know I was a pretty confident breastfeeder and just made a choice. I'm just going to breastfeed in front of people. Um, But I do know there were instances where I had to be around coworkers breastfeeding. And it was a little, I felt like I was crossing a boundary. Mm Mm-hmm. A little bit, you know, yeah. if I was bringing the baby to work for whatever reason, it was it was just a little harder to cross that boundary. Um, well, and so I can yeah. imagine being around coworkers yeah. coming into and your in room. In 1991, there was no breastfeeding in public. 
Right. Right. I mean, right. this is this is 1991. You know. Right. If I was in my living room and my father-in-law was there, he'd be like, "What do you do? What is she doing?" You know. And I was in my own living room. You know, covered right. up, trying to nurse my son. What is she doing? Or, you know, I have to take him now. He has to eat. Oh, I wanted to hold him more. You know, I got that kind of pressure from my family. Like mm-hmm. he should be ours, not it's important for you to feed him. Kind of. Can't you just mm-hmm. give him a bottle so we can hold him longer? Like that's right. The kind of or can thing I give him the bottle? Right, right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I had all of that, but um, I, I think that if I had more. I don't know, experiential support, you know, knowing, having, if I had witnessed any other woman breastfeed, I think that I would have felt stronger in my convictions to prioritize feeding him at the breast. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, looking back, I didn't even realize that I, you know, I didn't know what I was missing. I didn't know what I didn't know. I thought I was doing great, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. Then I learned a lot between that point. My, my um, daughter was born three years later. And just my knowledge base was evolving from working in labor and delivery and not feeling, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about birth culture and, and all that. Yes. Lisa said her second labor was quite different from the first, but she still wanted to please her friends on the labor and delivery floor, and she wanted to have a delivery that was convenient for her husband's schedule, who did not get paid parental leave. She took castor oil on a Friday night, and by the time her husband was home from work, they went straight to the hospital. She got an epidural at her doctor's suggestion so he could break her water, and her baby was born four hours later. This is what happened next. So now she's born, whole different experience. She come, you know, it wasn't a hard pushing experience. She comes skin to skin. I nursed her. She was a peanut. She was only 6'2". And they told me that um, I, her, they took, I, I did some skin to skin. I didn't, I didn't know what it was at that point, but I did hold her for a while And then, you know, we passed her around the room as we used to do. Everybody held her too. By the time she got up to the nursery, her temperature was low. And they Mm. wouldn't let me have her Mm. out of the nursery. They wouldn't let me nurse her because her temperature was low. And I said, well, I'll hold her and that'll stabilize her temperature. I knew that much at that point, right? This is 1994 now. These were my friends. These were people that I worked with forever. And they did not trust me to keep my baby warm. Mm. And I was sad and frustrated and I didn't know what to do to get my baby back. Finally, the shift changes, the day shift comes in and I'm like, listen, put a hat on her, wrap her up. I need to nurse my baby. This is crazy. And they let me do that. And then I went home that day. And, Mm. um, but of course, best laid plans. I had an injury at the hospital because when you are an employee of the hospital, you're more prone to things happening to you. Um, While I was having my epidural, after the birth, I was shivering like you normally shiver after birth and sometimes after a delivery, you get the shakes. 
And there was this well-meaning nurse who decided to wrap up a, um, a heated saline bottle from the heater. We used to have this heater, which is probably still there, that kept the fluids hot yes. for the sections. Mm-hmm. She wrapped it up, put it in a, a baby blanket and put it against my hip. And because I was numb, I didn't realize that when I moved, it shifted and I wound up with a third degree burn on my hip, which I still have a scar. So my, now I have a toddler, a newborn trying to nurse. It's going pretty well, but I have a third degree burn on my hip. So I couldn't even sit comfortably again nobody helping me with breastfeeding because nobody knew how to support me with breastfeeding. And I had to get it debrided. I was on, I was taking, and at that time I thought it wasn't safe to take any medicine and breastfeed. I had to take Motrin for the pain and I had to take it, you know, more often than I would have liked to nurse. So I wasn't nursing as often. And I started giving her formula and she was killing my nipples such Mm. with her latch. And she still, she's, this is the one that just made me a grandma. She's 27 years old. She still has a tongue tie. Mm. Um, she had a tongue tie. I didn't know about it at the time, but all of the symptoms were there. And um, I nursed her for, I went to the pediatrician. The pediatrician told me that I was starving her. And when I look back, she only lost 6%. Mm-hmm. And she told me I was starving her. She said to me, why are you doing this to yourself? Just give her formula. That was the support I got. So I gave her formula, cold turkey at three weeks. I wrapped my breast, put on ice and weaned her. I was like, I can't do this anymore. There's no reason to do it. I was like, I was probably a little postpartum depression or PTSD going on at the same time because I had this pain. I had this thing I had to deal with. I was getting, I was trying to, work things out with the hospital because they were nervous because I had an injury. You know, it was, there was a lot of things going on. So um, I just stopped. I just stopped. Mm. And, you know, she had, if I could go back, because she's got, she's only an N of one, but she has such a poor immune system. She catches everything that goes by. She had to have her tonsils out when she was six. She has a milk protein allergy. She's also got an allergy to yeast. She's very sensitive. She cannot, if she has, she she had the skin issue that we didn't know what it was. And then when we found out it was dietary intolerances, but she couldn't go in the sun for like Mm. five years. I could not expose her to sunlight. She would just break out of her body. So yeah, so she has a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of stuff that I know that breast milk and avoiding formula would have would have been helpful for her, and I feel terrible about it. But you know, you know better, you do better. You know better, you do better, and you didn't have anybody helping you, right? You know, you didn't have any. Even your medical providers were pushing you to do yeah. what you did. Yeah, right. Yeah, not only weren't they supporting me, but like I literally got from my pediatrician, like, why would you even do this? You're putting yourself right. in jail. That's what she told me. You're putting yourself in jail. Yeah. Right. And you know what? Other than that, I respected everything about her. She was an excellent pediatrician. She knew her stuff. She wasn't an alarmist. She was great with sickness in kids. She was wonderful, but she knew nothing about breastfeeding. Right. And you and I both know as lactation supporters, it's really hard to walk this, this 
tightrope act that we have to do when we're working with clients who are working with their pediatricians because Mm -hmm. we don't want to make them distrust their pediatricians because pediatricians, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to be with their pediatricians for 18 years, Mm -hmm. you know, potentially. And, Mm -hmm. and pediatricians, there can be really good pediatricians who just don't know breastfeeding Mm -hmm. because the, the amount of time that they get in med school for breastfeeding education is about three hours. Right. It's terrible. Um, It's it's terrible. terrible. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's such a small portion of what their scope is. Mm -hmm. And so do we wish that they had more breastfeeding information because that's how they start their relationship with the family? I I just wish they knew that they don't know. Like I wish they knew what they didn't know. Exactly. It goes beyond breastfeeding. I thought, I think it also has to do with, the way we raise our kids, baby care yes. in general, right? Yes. So they don't learn how to care for a baby. And then they're looked at as these experts on how to take care of your baby. And I like to turn it around and say, you know, as a parent, you're the expert on how to take care of your baby. You need the pediatrician when your baby's sick, when you have a health question, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's really, I go back and forth because a lot of times I say, well, it's not their fault. They didn't learn about this in school, but it is their fault because I didn't learn this about this in school either. Right. But I saw the needs of the people I'm taking care of and I kept learning and same right. with you, right? You didn't learn about right. this in any of your schooling, but you see a need and you learn what you need to know to be able to to care for the people that come to you for advice and, and lactation support. Right. I don't think there's really a good excuse. I think that we, we have to get to a point where we realize that we, we, our instincts matter as moms. Mm-hmm. And even if a kid is sick, our instincts matter as moms, mm-hmm. you know, even if, if yeah. somebody's not getting the right answer from their pediatrician, they should ask someone else, keep going exactly. until it yeah. feels right. In any subject matter, you know. What I try to do when working with anybody or even just talking to a friend is to help them feel like their internal feelings matter. And Mm -hmm. anytime your feelings are being dismissed by a care provider, that's not okay. No. Even if you do have to come up with another plan, there are times Mm -hmm. when somebody needs to switch to formula. Mm-hmm. And it might be because of missteps that happened for weeks. Yeah. You know, it's never a personal failure. I always right. say it's a systemic failure. Yeah. But it might be that you are at the point where it is time to make a different choice. But it's never okay for someone to be dismissive of the grief that someone might be feeling or of the efforts that have been made right. to maintain right. breastfeeding. Right. So I, I always like to say that it's not just what you're doing, but it's your experience of what you're doing that matters. So mm-hmm. your experience breastfeeding matters. So, you know, in the case of nipple pain, right, that matters. It matters even if, there, you know, there's people that believe that it's, it's okay for it to hurt, which is a whole other conversation. But, you know, what I say, it, it's not just about how the baby's doing. You know, oh, it's okay that you're uncomfortable, the baby's gaining weight, you know. And I say, no, the, your experience, how you feel about how you feed your baby 
is so important. And that's why I'm sad when I think back from, from that daughter, my daughter, Jess, because I was sad at the time because I knew mm. it, it didn't feel right, but I mm. didn't know what to do. And at the time mm-hmm. I sort of just like, yeah, I got through it. Um, I mean, I could go on about the experience of having that wound and it was open. It was, I had to fight to get extra time off from maternity because the wound was open. And I was mm-hmm. then I, as I was recovering, I started having more um, sadness about the breastfeeding not working out, you know, and I felt like a failure, you know. As lactation professionals, we constantly are asked why breastfeeding is so hard today. And I can't always point to one reason. But if I had to, this would be it. When you deliver your baby and expect the people who are helping you to take care of your newborn in the early weeks and months to be knowledgeable about breast milk and milk supply and expect them to have the answers and they act as if they do, answering your questions as if they know the answers and breastfeeding goes awry and those same people and everyone else in your life are dismissive of how emotionally painful it is not to be able to feed your baby as you intended, that is a huge barrier. It sets so many of us up for failure. And those providers, be it nurses in the hospital or pediatricians or family care providers, don't know what they don't know. And they don't refer out to those of us who can help. This is a huge gap in the system. And it makes so many of us feel as if we failed and as if breastfeeding is intrinsically difficult instead of a lost art. Um, so then I get pregnant again, eight years go by in those eight mm. years, I take care of my sister's kids. Um, four years, well, four years after Jess was born, I got my sister's kids, you know, part-time mostly, but a lot. And, um, so I have how old were, the babies how old were her children. They were twins were six months old at the time. Um, so, and they were preemies. They were born 30 weekers. They were preemies. And she passed away when they were six weeks old. Sounds like a really sad story. It's a happy ending because they're beautiful kids and everything is good. And, you know, I miss my sister every day, but it is, you know, it, it's a wound that is healed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm close with all four of them. It's wonderful. Our kids are like siblings. It's just, it's been a wonderful it takes a village kind of experience, you know, that mm-hmm. we've had. But so now I have six month old babies or starting from when they were born premature. She, we didn't, she, there was no way she was making breast milk. She had terminal cancer at the time. And I didn't realize the importance of it. When I look back, I would have made milk for those babies. Mm. You know, when I look back, they, they both have mm-hmm. asthma they're healthy, but they have asthma and allergies and like little things. But other than that, they're healthy. So um, I have the experience of bottle feeding twins. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was an adventure and twins that, you know, had reflux and asthma and in and out of the hospital and all that. So I have completely bottle fed babies and I have completely breastfed babies because then four years after that, I got pregnant again. My, my older kids were 11 and eight. I get pregnant with my third daughter. 
um, who's the baby of the whole tribe. <laughs> and um, I decide that I now, by this point, I was already in school. I was working on getting my degree so that I can go back for my midwifery degree. Um, I knew what I wanted to do. I was already like studying lactation. The internet was a thing. I was learning on my own. I had taken many courses already before I went back to school, been to conferences. I had spiritual midwifery. I knew the whole, I was like, and I had friends who were midwives who had started doing births in the hospital, which was monumental where I live, you know, to have mm. these midwives doing births. And we had a birthing room in the hospital with a tub. It was wonderful. But I said to them, guys, I want you to deliver my baby, but I want to do it at home. Mm. And they, I said, there is no way I'm going to have a be another baby in this hospital and go through what I went through the last time. So my brave friends who had never done a home birth, who were trained only in hospital birth, said, okay, as long as you're okay with, you know, if anything goes wrong, we're going right to the hospital. Everybody's got to know we get it. You got to get all the equipment and we have to have nurses there, you know, cause they were used to hospital birth. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was my two midwife friends, um, their intern at the time who is actually now a very established and wonderful midwife. It was, um, she was on call with them. And three of my best nurse friends from labor and delivery and my whole family was there and I had a beautiful home birth. And um, the interesting thing was Jill was born with a cleft lip. Mm. And if she was born at the hospital with a cleft lip, she would have been whisked off to the NICU. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was, she had a cleft lip, but she was perfect. Her palate was perfect. Mm. She nursed from birth without any problem with that cleft lip. We had zero separation and I nursed her for 14 months. Wow. What a difference. Yeah. Those first two stories mm -hmm. to the third story yeah. in having a supportive setting makes. Mm -hmm. It comes up again and again in the middle yep. of the minutes. Yep. I was surrounded Having, by people who believed I could do it. Mm -hmm. Even my mom, by the third one, my mom has since passed away, but I love telling this story. We were in the mall. I think my daughter was probably about three months old and we were shopping in the mall. We had all the kids with us and we stopped to have lunch at the little food court and the baby started crying and I'm like, oh no, I think she needs to eat. And my mom, she was so cool. Now this is 2001, right? So we've mm -hmm. went, we've, it, we've progressed a little bit. She's like, feed her here. I said, are you <laughs> sure, mom? You're okay with that? And she's like, Lisa, your baby is hungry. Feed your baby. <laughs> she was oh. so cool. And I was so proud of her, you know, because it was like, this is so cool, you know? So, yeah. And that, the, her whole, you know, my daughter, Jill, the one that she's 20 now, her whole birth, the whole birth experience and her breastfeeding for me and all of that, the way she was born was really healing for our whole family because we had been through trauma. It was also post 9-11. I was pregnant with her for 9-11. My brother mm -hmm. was a New York City firefighter. He was there. He lost many friends. Mm -hmm. He was affected immeasurably. He was at her birth too. And 
he he was a different person after her birth. Everybody was, a, you know, everybody was like empowered by me taking birth back, you know, and and that's what gave me the push to keep going in my career. I'm like, if I can do this, I can do anything, you know? Um, yeah. So that's that's my full circle, you know, turnaround with from from what it was in 91 to what it was in 2001. Totally yeah. different story. I think that story really illustrates how much birth and breastfeeding matter and mm -hmm. why we fight so hard to make mm -hmm. it matter. Because yeah. some people think, oh, it's just, you know, maybe six months of a baby's life, maybe a year of a baby's life, maybe two years of a baby and a mother's life. But what you're talking about is something that empowered you mm -hmm. to heal from past traumas. Mm -hmm. and to propel forward into the rest of your life with a new power that you had not had before. Right. And it, and it's intergenerational healing as well, because now not only did it help my mom, right. Come to terms with what it should be. And she was at my birth and she was so excited. And her and my mother-in-law, while I was in labor, they baked a birthday cake. Right. Oh. So it was so sweet. But anyway, so she was empowered by, by my power, you know, and so my daughter Jess was eight years old at the time of the birth. And she was with me. She literally was like holding my legs and rubbing my back and wiping my brow. And she just had, she just got pregnant and had a baby. And she had no doubt that she wanted a home birth. She said, mom, this is how babies are born. Why would I go to the hospital? And, you know, because she, the only birth experience that she knew of in our family was my birth with Jill and she was there in my bedroom. So she searched out and she got wonderful home birth midwives um, and she had an amazing home birth. And she's, you know, seven months breastfeeding, just starting on some baby led weaning and he's enjoying food and he's doing amazing. Of course, he's got a whole tongue tie story and we can, we can talk about that another time, but so proud of her and knowing that if I hadn't done what I had done for her sister's birth, my daughter's trajectory would be different mm -hmm. and her son's trajectory would be different. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. like a ripple effect. Yeah. Every time I feel like what I'm doing is really hard as a mother or as a practitioner, I just remember that it's going to be easier for my children. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it does make an impact because yes. I don't want them to struggle as much as I've struggled. Right. Right. And even the fact of the topic of like nursing in public, nobody was nursing in public when I had my son, even when I had Jill, when I was confident to kind of nurse in public, it was still a thing, you know, mm -hmm. but I nursed her in a lot of places because I had other kids. So I was always out, you know, and people like, I remember being at a basketball game and that I had people going, what is she doing? Mm. <laughs> and someone said, I think she's feeding the baby. You know, nobody, nobody knew this where I lived. It was crazy. But now my daughter nurses everywhere. Right. You know, and, and so the ripple effect over generations really does matter. Honestly, she was, she had no problems at all. I never had okay. pain. I never had engorgement, never had any clogged ducts. 
She mm-hmm. nursed, she grew, she was an efficient nurser. At three months old, she had to have surgery to repair it, which was okay. hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, by then I was like a really brave mama. Like I changed from my younger days and I was like, this kid is, you know, I'm going to nurse her as soon as she comes out of surgery. And cause she couldn't nurse right before surgery. And then the, um, I think the dentist that did the surgery that the, the I think he was a little afraid of me because I was like, this is what I'm doing. Okay. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> he, she comes out, you know, it was sad to leave her for surgery, but then I met her in the recovery room and she was screaming. So oh. I grabbed her f- off the bed and I latched her. I sat on the bed and I latched her and all of the nurses and techs, they were all trying to like get her vitals and stuff like that. And I was like, wait, and I latched mm-hmm. her and she stopped crying and she started nursing. And they were like, you can't do that. Like try and stop me because mm-hmm. if she's nursing, she's going to be quiet. And now you can take a vital signs and I'm not right. putting it down. Right. You know, they, we were supposed to stay overnight and they discharged us that night. They were like, get them out of here. You know? Right. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I'm not putting my baby down. She needs me. And she healed right. so beautifully. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. So, my my doctor really trusted me because he was like, I wouldn't normally let somebody go home. I said, I know, but the nurses want me to leave, right? Because they can't do anything for us. You know? mm-hmm. Funny, but yeah, she so healed. she didn't have any pain from the surgery that made nursing difficult. She might have had, you know, I gave her a couple of doses of Tylenol. Um, and then after that, it was fine. She she nursed perfectly. Wow. Really? I mean, I couldn't have had a better experience than I did with her wow. nurse. Um, mm-hmm. The only, my only sad part about that was she was so busy and so interested in becoming like the older kids that she had no patience for nursing. So like 14 months, she was done. I was like, wow. Hey, I want to keep uh-huh. going. Are you a professional that feels like you didn't learn enough about tongue tie in school? Whether you're a lactation consultant, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a midwife, a doula, a doctor, a speech-language pathologist, a chiropractor, PT, OT, dentist, etc. I don't mean to leave anyone out. Anyone who works with pregnant or breastfeeding families in any capacity who is curious about tongue tie is welcome in the Professional's Guide to Tongue Tie in the Breastfeeding Infant. What you'll learn, we have four modules, assessment, treatment plan, phrenotomy, and aftercare. So much great information, and it comes with a community. I didn't learn this in school, did you? Tongue tie treatment can be complex, and those who expect relief of symptoms with a quick snip or even a laser release, even by an experienced provider, are usually disappointed. Join me to learn protocols that offer an organized and simplified plan to support families through decision-making, preparation, treatment plans, procedure if needed, and aftercare. Learn the teamwork model of care. Knowing why and which providers are necessary will make things easier for you and provide effective outcomes for your patients. Please sign up today. The link is in the show notes. 
but you can go to my website, tongtieexperts.net, go to the professional tab. And one last thing, since you listen to my podcast, you'll get 15% off just by using the coupon code PODCAST15. And the word podcast is all in caps. Can't wait to see you in the group. Take care. I hear this story again and again that mothers come to their voice through breastfeeding. They come to find their voice and their um, ability to take control and take take charge of their children's life through breastfeeding. And I also hear the opposite, that when control gets taken away from them, you know, I hear it often if, if they have a baby who's in the NICU mm-hmm. for any amount of time and suddenly there's somebody telling them what their baby's schedule is, yeah. when they can touch their baby, when they can hold their baby, that then once the baby is released to them, it's very hard to then start making decisions for the baby. Yes. I have seen that and I've seen that in patients that come to me. Um, And I've also kind of been on that end of it. You know, when we had the, my sister had the babies and they were 30 weekers. And in, in 1998, a 30 weeker was, was more preterm than it is now. Right. It was a big deal, but they Mm -hmm. did, they were miracle babies. They did so Mm -hmm. well, but so well that at four weeks old, they were like, guess what? Alex can come home tomorrow. And we were like, what? We're not ready for him. (laughs) And then they just kind of like, okay, here's your baby go. And, And now you're like, wait, but you've been doing all this stuff to my baby. And now I just have to take him home and do what? They're like, just treat him like a normal baby. Like, but he's not a normal baby. Like it was, it was mind blowing. So I do, I do empathize with those moms who have been in that place. It's a scary thing. Um, yeah. I, I just think it's a good reminder, both to practitioners, like give the families as much power as you can and as much decision-making autonomy as you can. Mm-hmm. And to the families, if you're feeling out of control, <laughs> um, that can bleed over into toddlerhood, into mm-hmm. the preschool years, into the school years where you feel like you're constantly giving your power away with your children. Mm-hmm. And that's why these breastfeeding conversations are so important. And mm-hmm. it's why we talk about it so much because yeah. it, it's not just the, the months that your baby is breastfeeding. No. It, and it and to, to slide it back and go back to birth, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Birth. And so yes. many, so many women take back their experience like I did, not with the first one, sometimes with the second one, sometimes not mm-hmm. with the second one. Sometimes it takes mm-hmm. more because mm-hmm. you just keep learning and getting stronger and realizing that you've got nothing to lose. You're in charge of yourself, you know, but it's very hard, especially I was young. I was, I was a baby, you know, I was a baby having a baby the first time mm-hmm. I didn't know. And I thought I knew because I was a nurse, which is crazy because right. I knew nothing. Yeah. And I was in there. Yeah. So then let me ask you, um, because so many people just stay on the LND floor. They might work there for many years. They might make some small changes to how they 
um, do patient care when it comes to breastfeeding and even labor and delivery practices. But what do you think ignited the fire in you to change so drastically um, to how you were practicing previously to then becoming a CNM, to becoming an IBCLC, and now to having your private practice and being a tongue tie expert? So I believe that it was the influence of there were one or two nurses that I worked with. Let me see. I'll say there were three nurses I worked with who were thinking outside the box, who taught me to support women who were doing things naturally and who dragged me to conferences with them. Mm. And then there were these, this group of nurses, there were two of them from the hospital that started out going back to school and becoming midwives and coming back to our hospital after having worked as a nurse there, coming back and saying, we want to start Staten Island Midwifery Associates. We want to have a midwifery-based business here. And they did. And they mm. hired nurses from the hospital to work in their office. They had health fairs where they taught about natural birth. There, I learned from their patients, from taking care of their patients. It like lit a fire in me. And yeah, it's amazing it, the impact yeah. that a couple of people can make. Yes, you know, positively yes. or negatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so so then now you have your own private practice and you serve all types of people, but you specialize yeah. in tongue tie. How did that passion yeah. grow in you for helping people with tongue tie? So I, I worked in an outpatient clinic. I became an IBCLC. And in one week, I had three patients that I could not help. Like I tried everything. I tried different mm. holds. I tried whatever. Could not get what, what I knew, I couldn't get three different babies to latch. And one mm. of the moms said to me, somebody said that maybe my baby has a tongue tie. And I dismissed her. Just like mm. so many providers do now, I just dismissed her because I didn't know about tongue tie. I only knew what I learned in school about anterior tongue tie. And I dismissed her. I felt like crap, honestly, because I go home and I'm like, this isn't right. You know, this week sucked. I might as well just stop what I'm doing because I can't help people anymore. And mm. thank goodness the internet was a thing already. And I was <laughs> like, let me, let me look at this tongue tie thing. Maybe it is something. But in my midwife's brain, I was thinking non-intervention, right? As a midwife, I don't want to do anything that's not necessary. And I was thinking, why would we have babies born who needed a procedure in order to breastfeed? That didn't make any sense to me. And it really doesn't make sense if you think about it that way. Babies should be able to breastfeed. So I opened my mind. I did some research. I found an, on, uh, an association at the time. It was called IATP, which is the International Association of Tongue-Tie Professionals. I started digging into all the stuff they had online. I think they had some online courses. And then I went to a conference and I walked into the conference and I called my husband after the first session. And I said, honey, I've met my people. It was people from all over the world that were having the same kind of experiences that I was having, not being able to help certain babies. And they didn't know why. And then starting to look into tongue tie. And coming together with those who one step ahead of us, and we started learning from each other, 
And then I came home from the conference and I spoke to someone else who was, who was there and who was much more experienced than me, but wasn't in my area. And I said, like, how can I, how can I help? I don't really know enough yet. And they said, but you know more than anybody else in your area, Mm -hmm. right? We need you to do this. We need someone where you live to do this. So, you know, put on your big girl pants and start practicing telling people that you take care of tongue tie. And all it took was me having one successful family for it to start snowballing. So this was mm-hmm. going back, I don't know, 10 years ago. And now I have my own courses. I have a podcast all about it where, you know, I, I, call, the, I call what I do tongue tie experts, not because I think I'm an expert, because I, I want, I think everyone's an expert who has dealt with tongue tie, whether they be a parent or a provider, a professional, a doctor, a nurse, whoever it is, if they've dealt with this issue and they know about it, they're the experts. So I bring the experts together. And we talk Mm -hmm. about it and we learn from each other. Mm -hmm. So that's how I've gotten where I am. And I've honed my protocols over the years. Things change. You know, I keep learning and growing and evolving. What I would have told a family five years ago is different than what I tell them now. And probably a year from now will be different. um, Because you know better, you do better. And there's more research coming out. And uh, just keep going. And I love what I do because... I impact so many lives by what I do and I can make so many connections, you know, like a lot of times I feel like I'm just a director, like you don't need me, but you need this one and then you need this one and then come back to me, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So your podcast is called the tongue tie experts podcast. It is. Yep. Pretty obvious. So (laughs) yes. And people can find that wherever they listen to podcasts. And, you know, for everybody who's listening, you got to know that Lowe is on my podcast. Look look for that episode. <laughs> yeah, I told my story, my personal story of breastfeeding, yep. which I have not told on this podcast. And we had a great um, conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you both interview, you kind of do a mix. You interview yes. um, other experts in the field, mm-hmm. all those people that you just mentioned. So mm-hmm. it could be another IBCLC, or it could be a craniosacral therapist, or it could be a dentist. Mm-hmm. You interview so many people whose experience intersects with tongue tie. Yes. And um, but then parents, you family. Yes. And then you also talk to parents because what they're saying about their experiences, what we parents who have experienced tongue tie, even you, you are mm-hmm. a parent who experienced tongue tie. You just never had it resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, what we say about what's happening with us and with our babies matters. Absolutely. It really is. You hear the stories because until you right. hear the stories, you may not be affected by it. And I feel it's important for families who are going through struggles right now to hear their stories and other people's stories, because I hear the same stories over and over Mm -hmm. and over different Mm -hmm. people, different details, but basically the same underlying thread in the story. Okay. Awesome. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing um, both your personal stories and then how that led you into your professional expertise. And I just want to thank you for also being a person who was willing to grow and change. Oh, thank you. Because it's made an impact on the breastfeeding community. And so many people just stay stagnant. Mm -hmm. And we need many more people 
seeing what's wrong and then deciding to learn and change themselves personally so that they can impact um, the birth and breastfeeding culture. So right. I appreciate you being someone who is willing to do oh, that. Thank you. I appreciate your appreciation. And I <laughs> get more than I receive more than I give from this work. It's beautiful. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so time. much for having me. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed and for ways to follow us on social media. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed listening, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.